Well, good morning. Hey, a note. We're going to be celebrating communion after um, message. And there's communion cups up there on the table. If you didn't get one, please feel free to get one uh, if you want to celebrate with us. Okay, you know what's going to be hard about this sermon for me? I can't move. The staff did this just to torture me. Um, Requiem for a Heavyweight is a movie, fictional, but it talks about a boxer named Mountain Rivera who is told by a doctor, your boxing career is done. So he walks into an employment agency to talk with an employment counselor. And so begins the discussion. And the, the, the employment counselor said, you know, we don't really have a match for your job. It's going to be tough to place you. And they, they work down the application. And then he goes, you know, this question, why did you leave your last job? I left my last job because the doctor said I was done. One more punch, I'd lose my vision. He says to the counselor, do you know I was ranked fifth in the world, fifth in the world, and now I'm done. Isn't that how significance can go sometimes? We've got it, and then in an instant, it's gone. Is there a way that we can maintain significance, that we're not subject to the world. Well, there is, and I want to talk about that today. So as Nate mentioned, if you'd open a, your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 9 and 10, we're going to go through these, through these verses, wrestling with this question, how can we maintain a life of significance? How can we maintain a life of significance? Now, if you've been with us, if you haven't been with us, we're going through the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. They talk about Israel's transition from a loose federation of states to a theocracy. Our passage, our 1 Samuel opened with a lady who was infertile. She prayed for a son, said she'd dedicate him to the Lord. He was, she was given a son. His name's Samuel. She did dedicate him to the Lord. And he has been risen up by God to be God's spokesman. He's a prophet. Uh, Israel is dealing with this ubiquitous, ever-present enemy, the Philistines. And they decide they want a king to protect them. Well, there's all kinds of steps that get there, but finally they kept pressing the issue. And we saw last week, the prophet Samuel warned them, the king will take and take and take from you. But they said, we want a king anyway. So this week, they're going to get their king. And that's where we pick it up. First Samuel chapter nine, verse one, talks about Saul's genealogy. It talks about his father. Verse two then gets us to Saul, the person of interest, Here's what it says. He, Kish, had a son whose name was Saul, a choice and handsome man, and there was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. For his shoulders and up, he was taller than any of the people. Saul looks like a king. He's handsome, and he's a head taller than anybody else. Now, as we go through these scriptures, we always want to be applying them to our day. And I must tell you, when I think of a description of a tall and handsome man, I think of our student pastor, Nate Gotchell. You know, the scripture says about Saul, there was not a more handsome person in Israel. Church, you just saw him. Can we agree there's not a more Lincoln than Pastor Nate Gotchell? Indeed. Anyway, Saul is the man to fill the position of king. Verses 3 and 4, his dad sends him on a mission to find some lost donkeys. 
Verse 5, Saul wants to give up. We're done. But he has a servant who goes with him. And in verse 6, that servant has an idea. He, the servant said to him, Saul, but he says, behold, now there's a man of God in this city and the man is held in honor. All that he says surely comes true. Now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us about our journey on which we have set out. So the servant isn't ready to give up. The servant says, maybe we should consult God in this. It's kind of sad that Saul the king didn't think of that, but the servant did. Verse 7, Saul goes, oh, but we got nothing to offer this prophet Samuel. And the servant says, well, I got a quarter of a shekel. That's what he says in verse 8. Verse 9 talks about the custom that you always gave the servant of God an offering. Uh, verse 10, Saul agrees, we'll go. Verses 11 through 14 then they ask directions on how to find Samuel. And we pick it up in verse 15. And here's what it says. Now, a day before Samuel's coming, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel saying, at this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him to be a prince over my people, Israel. And he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. That's, that's what Israel wanted. They, they wanted deliverance. For I regarded my people because their cry has come to me. What's interesting here is the word choice in verse 16. He says he's going to be a prince. That's another word for a commander or a ruler. What it is not a word for is king. God is specifically telling Samuel, this will not be a king and that he will have absolute authority. The kingship of Israel will be different than the kingship of any other nation because the kingship of Israel will operate under the autonomy of God. Saul will have a hard time with this concept. Verse 17, when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, behold, the man of God whom I spoke to you, this one shall rule over my people. The word there is, could be translated restrain. He's going to try and Stop the chaos that was in the book of Judges where everything was disordered. But again, it's not the sign of an absolute ruler. Verse 18, then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, please tell me where the seer's house is. He doesn't even know he's talking to Samuel. Verse 19, Samuel answered Saul and said, I'm the seer. Go up before me to the high place for you shall eat with me today. And in the morning, I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys, which were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. Now he's gonna ask two kind of cryptic, enigmatic questions that hint at what Saul's future is. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? That's a, a reference to Saul. You're the one. You're the one that Israel has wanted. You're the king. Second question, is it not for you and for all your father's household? He's talking about the wealth. You're going to have access to all the wealth of Israel. Saul protests in verse 21, am I not a Benjamite, one of the smallest of the tribes of Israel, and my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak this way? You see what Saul's saying? There's 12 tribes of Israel, and we're the lowest. 
And then you take that lowest tribe and you list the families and we're the lowest. Why would I be chosen as king? Because God doesn't need position. He doesn't need prestige to use a man or woman for his glory. But he does need a posture of the heart that is submitted to him. Verse 22 to 24, then Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought him into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who were invited, who were about 30. Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion that I gave you concerning which I said to you, set it aside. Then the cook took up the leg with wood on it and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, here's what has been reserved. See it before you and eat, because it has been kept for you until the appointed time since I said I have invited the people. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. So Saul gets the priestly portion. He gets the portion that's usually allotted to the, the religious spiritual advisor. And, and it's got priestly significance. It's not super clear. But then the position Saul's going to fill is, is unique because he's not going to be a king with absolute authority. He is going to rule over the people, but under God's autonomy. Verses 25 to 27, I won't read, but Samuel the prophet sends Saul's servant ahead, said, you guys go ahead, because this sets up chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took the flask of oil, poured it on his head, and kissed him and said, has not the Lord anointed you a ruler? Again, same word, a prince, a commander, not an absolute king over his inheritance. That's a rhetorical question. Yes. You, Saul, are God's choice to be a commander, to be a ruler, but not an absolute monarch. What will keep Saul in this position? That he's tall and handsome? No. That he's submitted to the God, that he understands his role. See, we're wrestling with this question, how can we maintain a life of significance? And I would say this, submission to God promises a life of significance. Submission to God promises a life of significance. And our culture would say something different. You need to have a position. You need to have prestige. You need to have money. You need to be famous. You need that many followers on Twitter. You need that many likes on Facebook. And God would say, no, it is not about position. It's about the posture of your heart. Why would I say that? Colossians 1 says that God made the world and it was made for God. So we're going to, in this creation, we're going to have to be submitted to him. So as we think about applying this, here's my question for you. Who do you think is more significant? The, the athlete, the entertainer with how many million followers on Twitter or the person who's humbly submitted to the Lord. It's arguably, I understand it's a, it's a huge dichotomy, but I, I'm making a point. Worldly significance comes and goes. I know the world of sports, so that's what I'll use. Right now, LeBron James, I don't know, has how many followers on Twitter? Do you realize 30 years ago, it was about Michael Jordan? 30 years ago, this summer, they're talking about the dream team. Who talks about Michael Jordan now? 15 years ago, it was about Kobe Bryant. They, they come and they go, and we can pick any area of life. 
Significance is not locking something in the creation. It is being submitted to the creator. 93, 94 school year, I spent about nine months in Russia. During that time, the ruble went from 700 rubles to a dollar to 2,800 rubles to a dollar. It wasn't holding its value. There were certain places we could go to change money. And, and I'll never forget this day, there was a Russian man in front of me. And where I was trading dollars for rubles, he, he was trading rubles for one dollar. He had collected some extra rubles and he wanted them to hold their value. So he was gonna buy a currency outside of his country, a dollar, because that would hold value. Do you understand that when we want to be significant, when we want to have an impact, it doesn't come in the creation. Like that man buying the dollar currency outside his system. So too, we find significance outside the creation in their creator. Submission to God promises a life of significance. Saul will struggle with this. A little bit of a spoiler alert in the coming weeks. He will struggle with this. He will have a position, but he will lose that because he doesn't have the idea of submission to God. Well, verses two through eight um, tell of three s signs that Saul is to be king. First, somebody's going to come up to him and say, hey, your donkeys have been found. Don't worry about it. Second, three people are going to come up and one of those people is going to hand him two loaves of bread. And third, he's going to encounter a group of prophets. The text will only talk about the fulfillment of the third sign. So let's pick it up in verse nine. It says, then it happened when he turned his back to leave Samuel. God changed his heart. God changed whose heart? Saul's. And all those signs that I just talked about came about on that day. Verse 10, when they came to the hill there, behold, a group of prophets, we're going to talk about the third sign, met him. And the spirit of God came upon him mightily so that he prophesied among them. It came about when all who knew him previously saw that he prophesied now with the prophets, that the people said to one another, what has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? A man there said, now, who is their father? Therefore, it became a prophet. Is Saul also among the prophets? When he finished prophesying, he came to the high place. The Spirit of God comes upon Saul, and his heart is changed. That was unique in the Old Testament. Very few the Spirit of God, and they were given for a specific task. Do you understand in the New Testament? At Pentecost, that Spirit of God was poured out on every believer in Jesus. And hearts are changed when we come to the gospel. How? That instead of living for self, we would live for God. Instead of living in rebellion to God, we live in submission to God. And that's where significance comes. Verses 14 through 16, Saul has an interaction with his uncle. He tells his uncle about the donkeys. The uncle wants to know, what did the man of God say? He doesn't say anything to him about being anointed king. It makes us wonder, is, is Saul a reluctant king? Um, verses 17 through 19, Samuel repeats the warning signs about a king that he's going to take from you. We talked about that at length last week. Um, verses 20 and 21, 
Samuel gathers the nation and they use lots to discern who's the king. So they pick the tribe of Benjamin, then they pick a family, and then they pick a member of the family and, and Saul is chosen. He is the king. The problem is, where is Saul? We pick it up in verse 22. Saul has been identified publicly as the king. So they said, therefore, they inquired further of the Lord, has the man come here yet? So the Lord said, behold, he's hiding himself by the baggage. So they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. Samuel in verse 24 says, do you see whom the Lord has chosen? Surely there is no one like him among all the people. So the people shouted, long live the king. Verses 25 to 27, Samuel sends the people on their way home. Verse 27, we find there's some doubters. Uh, we'll talk about that uh, in the weeks to come. Submission to God. Saul has a position of significance. Be significant. Because he'll fail submission to God. You know, if we want to look at someone who is submitted to God, we look at Jesus. John 5, 19 and 20, Jesus said, I do nothing unless I see the Father doing it. His life was in submission to the Father. John 8, verse 29, Jesus said, everything I do is pleasing to the Father. I, I, I evaluate everything I do by will it please my Father. He lived in submission to the Father. Finally, at the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus didn't want to go to the cross, but he said, Lord, Father, not your will, but my will. As we think about being submitted to God, let us look to Jesus. He is the one who modeled submission. He is the one who can empower submission in our lives. If I gave you the name Edward Kimball, my guess is most of you wouldn't know that name. He was a Sunday school teacher of teenage boys back in the 1850s. One day he had a young man come to class out of the blue and he asked the young man to find the Gospel of John and he, he couldn't even find the Gospel of John. And the other boy snickered. He asked him to read a verse and, and this poor young man uh, couldn't read, struggled to read. Well, that humble school teacher continued to follow up on him. And one day he went to the, the young lad's work. He was working, stacking boxes in a back room. And he led Dwight to the Lord. Dwight's last name? Moody. Dwight L. Moody, the great, we haven't heard the name Edward Kimball. But I would say Edward Kimball reached more people through Dwight Moody. What made Edward so significant? His position? No, his submission. You want eternal significance? I want eternal significance. It's not in a position, friends. It's in the posture of our heart. How can we maintain a life of significance? Sub promises a life of significance. Submission to the Lord promises a life of significance. We're going to move to a communion, time of communion now, where we um, remember this Jesus who died for us that we might be able to submit 
to the Father. We don't become, believe this becomes the literal body and blood of Jesus. We believe this is a memorial. We're remembering this one who died for us. Um, Paul wrote about what we're about to practice in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 and 24. He said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I invite you to take that wafer and eat. Father in heaven, we remember this Jesus, body broken for us. Lord, thanks that we've been delivered from having to chase a position or chase followers on Twitter or chase a money or chase a popularity. It's a life of significance is found in submission to you regardless of position, regardless of net worth, regardless of popularity. And that was modeled by our humble Savior who fully submitted to you to the point of death on the cross. And yet you raised him from the dead. And it's his name we pray. Amen. Paul continued talking about this in verse 25 and 26. It says, in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I invite you to take Lord Jesus, we we have no place singing about a good good father if our blood, if your blood is not shed for us. If you do not wash us clean from our sin. We realize there was a cost when you went to the cross. We remember you. We honor you. We'll spend eternity expressing our gratitude and praising you. For now, we thank you and we pray in your name. Amen.